You're listening to That Music Podcast with me, Bryson Tarbett. I'm the music educator and blogger behind That Music Teacher and ThatMusicTeacher.com. Join me as I dive into what it really means to be a music educator. I hope that you're able to find a nugget of inspiration each week as I share my favorite ways to create purposeful instruction through active music making. Along the way, you'll hear from some of my amazing colleagues as they share practical advice that you can apply to your own classrooms. So grab a coffee, sit down, and let's get started. This episode is brought to you by my free guide on better serving our students with disabilities in the music classroom. I firmly believe that our job as music educators is to help our students find the way in which they can be best musical. And when it comes to teaching students with disabilities, most of us don't feel prepared to best serve these students. In this free guide, I'll share five ways to better serve the students with disabilities in your classroom so that you can truly say that your classroom is for everyone. To grab your free guide, head to thatmusicteacher.com slash disabilities. Again, to grab your free PDF guide, including a foreword by Lauren Morsenkowski about why disability isn't a bad word, head on over to thatmusicteacher.com slash disabilities. Today's episode with Audrey Rice is all about how we can make our classrooms more accessible and make sure that our students are also feel like they're represented and that we're also showing different cultures and backgrounds and different um, previous experiences in our classroom and how we can reflect that in the music we choose. Audrey Rice is a good personal friend of mine, and I can't wait for you to hear this conversation. Audrey Rice currently teaches fourth and fifth grade general music at Winchester Trail Elementary School in Canal, Winchester, Ohio. She also co-directs the Winchester Trail Fifth Grade Choir with her co-worker and fellow music teacher, Bobby Phillips. Audrey also co-facilitates a research-based girls' empowerment program called Rocks at Winchester Trail and is a secretary of the Canal Winchester Education Association. Audrey holds a Bachelor of Music Education from The Ohio State University. She's previously taught grades 1 through 5 general music and grades 6 through 8 choir, as well as private flute, voice, piano, and ukulele. She's also previously taught with the Kodai-based early childhood program, We Joy Sing, and she's currently pursuing a Master of Music and Music Education with a Kodai emphasis from Capital University and is an active member of the Tri-City Kodai Educators. Without any more chatter on my part, here is my conversation with the wonderful Audrey Rice. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to That Music Podcast. Today, we have an extra special episode with my good friend, Audrey Rice. So, Audrey, thank you so much for joining us today. Of course. I'm so honored that you asked me to be on. So I'm extra excited about this topic because as you know, we know we each know each other personally from our Cody levels. And as we've been going through these levels, I feel like our, our cohort especially has been really um, kind of purposeful about the questions we ask and and the questions you raise when it comes to um, cultural appropriation, when it comes to truly having a a classroom that's responsive to the cultures that we have in our classrooms, as well as those um, that we're kind of showing a window into. So I'm really excited about this conversation. And I know that you have a lot of thoughts as well. So I'm really excited to go ahead and dive on in. Yeah, I'm super excited too. And I I agree. I think that We've had a good group of people in our Kodai levels, um, in a respectful way, of course, just kind of continue to question the paradigm. And I think that this is the best time now more than ever to to make some good and needed, re- not necessarily changes to the Kodai philosophy, but just refocusing. I, I like that the idea of refocusing, because I, I do believe that the Kodai philosophy at its core has a lot of wonderful things that can be applied. Um, but we just need to make sure that we're doing so in a way that, like you said, is focused on the things we want to focus on. Yeah, for sure. 
So before we dive into the nitty gritty of today's episode, will you tell us a little bit about yourself? Where do you, where did you go to school and where and what do you currently teach? Yeah, so I went to uh, Ohio State University for my undergrad. I graduated there in 2016. Um, and now I'm at Capitol for my master's in music education with you. Uh, we just finished up level two Kodai, and then we're going to do level three next summer and put a pretty bow on that. Um, but it's been a really great experience. Right now, I teach fourth and fifth grade general music at Winchester Trail Elementary in Canal Winchester, Ohio, which is just, for those of you who don't know, um, a suburb just south of Columbus. Um, and previously, I have taught grades one through five general music and also six through eight choir. So I had a couple of other positions before landing this one in Canal, but I've been here. Uh, this is my fourth year here in this building, and I, I love it. I love teaching the upper elementary kids. I think it's a great mix between the things I've done before, and I think you can really do some cool stuff with them. So I'm I'm excited about uh, this year and diving into some of uh, the cool things that we've learned over the summer at Capitol. Oh, for sure. I've definitely keep trying to apply everything that we've done, especially this past summer. Um, but unfortunately, COVID keeps getting in the way but here and there. Uh, but that's beyond the point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, lots of dancing at our dot right now, but we'll make it work. <laughs> All the dot dancing. Uh, so other than teaching, what's something else that you're passionate, passionate about and that brings you joy in your life? So I'm a huge foodie. And I love that Columbus is a huge food city. So I love trying new restaurants um, and going to live concerts when it's possible. I went to an outdoor one the other day, which was really nice because we could spread out. But I really do miss live shows. So I love live entertainment and food. And I also am a big dog person. I don't have a dog of my own yet, but my roommate has an adorable golden doodle named Murphy. And I like to claim him as my own. And take him to dog events and meet new people at, at dog things. So those are some of the things I like to do outside of teaching. I love the whole, I don't have a dog now, but I claim one. Like my former roommate had a dog and it was wonderful. I had all the good parts of having a dog, but like it, I didn't have to be like the person in charge. And for me, that's where I, what I needed. <laughs> oh my God. Exactly. Yeah. It, that was ideal. It's an ideal situation. So what led you to pursue your degree in music education and how did you end up teaching where you are now? So I was actually inspired to teach music by my middle school band director, uh, who then became my private flute teacher. And ever since then, I've known that I wanted to be some sort of music educator. So I got really lucky that I knew what I wanted to do sort of earlier on. I know everyone has a different time for uh, realizing that, that that is a passion of theirs. So uh, so she kind of helped guide me through the process and auditioned for schools, and I landed on OSU. Uh, I originally was double majoring in flute performance and music ed, but then I quickly dropped the performance part because I realized I would have all the same performance opportunities with an ed major, and I knew that I wanted to teach. So uh, I was able to do lots with flute and voice, which are my two main squeezes, and it was a really great opportunity to go to OSU and be able to do all of those things. Um, and so then, like I said, I graduated in 2016 and after undergrad, my first position was in new Albany, Ohio, which is right next to where I grew up in Gahanna. Uh, and that was a great year of teaching one through five general music. Um, unfortunately the position was eliminated. And so I was searching for another job and I ended up landing a long-term sub where I student taught in uh, upper Arlington 
at Hastings Middle School. So I did one year of middle school choir there. Absolutely loved it. But then again, that was a one-year position. So I had found myself shuffling around a lot and uh, wanted to put some roots down somewhere. And then this this job at Canal became open. And I uh, absolutely love it here, especially one of the things I love the most is I get to teach with my good friend, Bobby Phillips. Um, we weren't friends until I got this job here, but he uh, is another music teacher in the building. So I think I'm in a really unique position to not be an island and we get to bounce off of each other and we have very similar philosoph- philosophies. Uh, and he's in our program at Capital too. So lots of good coworkers here in Canal. I have to say I'm pretty envious of your ability to have other music teachers around you because in my position, I'm currently very much so an island. <laughs> yeah, it's it's hard. I've been there and it's really hard um, to do that. You have to really be intentional about making time to see other coworkers for sure. It's tricky. So let's go ahead and dive into the real meat of today's interview. And I want to ask you a very it's a hard question to answer, but for you at least, what do you think it means to teach responsively and why is it important for all educators to do so? I actually have a really timely answer for this. I went to the um, the Trike or Tri-City Kodai Educators Workshop last Saturday, and the topic of the workshop was culturally responsive music education. So I was thinking uh, about our upcoming interview and how perfect it was. But the... Um, clinician was Ashley Cuthberson. She is a Kodai educator in the DC, Virginia area. And she actually asked us to come up with our own definition of what culturally responsive teaching means, because it is a meaty term. And I think it's misunderstood. Um, But I came up with culturally responsive teaching is actively responding to the cultures of our students and our world using inclusive and authentic curriculum taught through an abolitionist lens. So I spent some time crafting that, but I want to break it down really quick. So while I think it's super important to respond to the cultures of our students, like let's say you have uh, a significant uh, Hispanic population in your classroom, you would want to honor that culture in an authentic way. So making sure you do your research um, and even perhaps asking some students and families to provide insight or share out if they want to without making them spokespeople, of course, but also to our world. I've taught in very diverse environments and I've also taught in environments that are predominantly white. And I think it's just as important, if not even more important to teach those students about the different cultures of our world because they may not be exposed to it. So I, I really wanted to include students and our world Um And like I said, it needs to be authentic, which means that you have to do your own research and make sure that you're not teaching um, a whitewashed version of something or something that could be appropriation rather than appreciation. Um, And I always think that we need to come at things with an abolitionist lens, which is uh, referring to not just being not racist, but being anti-racist. So actively making sure that all of our students of color are included in every single way in our classroom. And we can get into that a little bit more with some of the other prompts. That was a really good, I, I like your, your definition a lot. I think that's a really good in, um, kind of journey for us to all take is, you know, figure out what the definition is, definition is for us. Because like you said, it is really meaty and it could mean a lot of things. But, but I think for us, 
as educators, I think it's important for us to kind of dive into that definition and kind of come up with what that means for us. Um, so thank you for sharing that. And I, I'm kind of jealous that I didn't make it to that, that session. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. I have some good notes I'll share with you. So I know that we've personally had conversations in the past about Kodai influenced education and responsive teaching and how they sometimes don't intersect super well. Do you think that these are these two kind of philosophies are mutually exclusive principles or do you think that they they are able to get along with each other? I truly believe that they go hand in hand. Um, as you know, and as other Kodai educators know, the entire Kodai philosophy is based on music of one's mother tongue. And here in America, we're so fortunate that we don't have one mother tongue. We are the country of people coming from all different places. And we are truly, um, I don't want to say melting pot. What's the new, what's the new, uh, uh, analogy, the salad bowl. We're mixing all of our cultures together. We don't want to melt into one, but we want to just appreciate and be part of all of these cultures. So I think we're in an especially fortunate place, uh, to have so many mother tongues. So, Really, to be teaching culturally responsively and teaching about all the cultures of our world really is originally what Kodai wanted and what his philosophy was all about. For sure. I clearly agree. We've had conversations with this in the past, um, but it it isn't something that necessarily is shared by everyone. So what do you think people get wrong about responsive teaching, especially when looking at it through a Kodai lens? You know, unfortunately, lots of this original idea of mother tongue and um, multiculturalism uh, has been lost in the implementation of the Kodai method in America over time. Uh, the Kodai method has been very whitewashed uh, and most people know it as only including songs in English or from quote unquote traditional roots, um, which is a kind of a red flag in my opinion. I think we really need to examine all the songs that we're using and make sure that they don't have racist histories and in my opinion, there's so many songs in the world. So for someone to get hung up on losing chicken on a fence post in their curriculum is kind of silly to me because there's so many other songs that are great to use to teach Tikka Tikka as just an example. So why would we risk it? You know, if something has a potentially harmful implication that could affect our students in a negative way, I think it's completely appropriate to replace it with something else. I uh, ugh, that that replacement thing I, I I feel very strongly with because we've all been in these Facebook groups where things get wildly blown out of proportion when we're like, hey, this is a song that you know comes from minstrel shows. You really shouldn't be using it in your curriculum. Why don't you replace it? And everyone gets it can get it can be really easy to get defensive about it. I mean, I've I've definitely had songs in my own curriculum that I had taught. I mean. I, for whatever reason, all the song, the ticket ticket songs, so many of the the quote unquote good ticket ticket songs that we've used for years, now we now know are you know a lot of them come from minstrel shows, and you know we we this past summer spent a lot of time trying to find good songs for ticket ticket um, that don't come from that place, and I think it it can be really hard because it is a lot of work sometimes, but just like you said, there's so much that 
there's so much music out there. And I think it's our job as music teachers, especially if we're kind of looking at three things through um, a Kodai lens as, you know, we are for better or for worse, we are part of this oral tradition passing this music on. And we need to make sure that the music that we are choosing to pass on is music that is worthy of being passed on and music that is worthy of, you know, the high quality music education that our students deserve. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Thankfully, I have seen more and more people hop on the bandwagon of eliminating problematic music and being more willing to do so. But I think also social media and sharing ideas of replacement songs and things to do instead has been really helpful. But there are definitely those people who are still very hesitant. Um, Of course, everyone has different teaching situations and has autonomy over their own teaching. So really, the choice to eliminate or to keep a song is ultimately up to you. Uh, but I think that we all need to really look at the songs that we teach and just like you said, examine them with a fine microscopic lens and say, is this really a song that is worth teaching? What does this song have to offer that another song couldn't? Um, and I think you know as well as anyone, I mean, I know that you do, that a lot of the books and texts that we've used, um, some of the songs are have deep roots in blackface minstrelsy. And many of us didn't know any of that until last year. So it's been challenging, obviously, to change how you've been doing something and what has worked for you pedagogically. Um, but there's definitely songs that that need to be eliminated. I think there's a difference between uh, eliminating a song that's part of blackface minstrelsy. Definitely, that's just a we're not doing that one anymore. There's other songs that have different themes that might be a little bit risky, but you have to be the one to research a song, figure out its exact roots, and figure out whether it's worth teaching. Sometimes things are worth teaching for history's sake. Like I love to do units on um, songs about the Underground Railroad. You know, it's a tricky subject to broach because it's not a happy and fuzzy subject, but it's important to learn about what had happened in our country, not really in the grand scheme that long ago. Uh, and I think kids can rise to that occasion. It really just depends. But uh, but I do think, you know, if you don't know exactly why you're teaching a song or what the roots of the song are, you need to do some more examining. And that's one of those things where I feel like it can be really hard because you're like, well, I I don't know what I don't know. And that's kind of where what I like about the Kodai philosophy and the folks in the research is that you really get to know the repertoire that you're using. And again, that comes at the luxury of, of spending time, or in the case of Kodai levels, losing a little bit of, of sleep, um, trying to, you know, getting this done in a, a short period of time. But even beyond that, I think it's kind of, it's really eye-opening to see that, like you said, a lot of the, if we think of the, the songs with the questionable past document, which is wonderful. Um, a lot of these songs come from, uh, you know, blackface and minstrel shows, but then a lot of them are like, well, it might have a risque theme. And again, that's, that's kind of one of those things where it is up to you and what you're comfortable with in, and what your school might be comfortable with. But I think it's also important for us to realize, even with those songs with, um, blackface you know and, and minstrel shows that at some point I, I truly believe that at some point we as music educators need to have that conversation with our students that in the history of of us of, of the United States music was used in a hateful way now the reality of that is you know I, I don't think that that the, at a kindergarten classroom is the place for that to be um, 
But I do think that if we're going to start talking at the more high school level or at a basic level in upper middle school or things like that, to have conversations about the different uses for music and how music sometimes has been used in not so great ways is a wonderful way for us to realize that music is powerful and we need to be careful with it because it's been, it it can easily be used in a way that is not okay. Absolutely. And you know, you're right. I'm I'm not going to be sitting down with a kindergarten class or even a fourth grade class and say, Hey, remember this song? blackface and like really draw so much attention to it because you know they don't always they're not always capable of understanding those things and every stage of childhood has a level of appropriate um things that are appropriate to discuss uh but i do think that it's super important there's other ways that we can show uh more diversity and more inclusion i i try to make sure that all of my materials uh, include people of color, whether it be books or visuals or posters. Um, and then, you know, rather than dwelling on why we don't do certain songs, I just introduce new ones and I make sure that, that the things that I introduce are diverse because when those kids grow up, they're going to look back when they have maybe the depth and breadth to analyze the situation. And, and I hope that they'll remember my class as somewhere where they felt included and somewhere where they learned about music of our whole world. You know, that's really my goal. And I think that, you know, is your goal. And I think that's most people we know's goal. And it's very important that we, we are intentional about what we teach just for that very reason, because everything matters. Yeah. And there's, there's so many un- unintended consequences in everything we do in education. Absolutely. As we know, you know, you try one thing you have, you, even if you have the best intentions, it can be received in a way that is not at all what your intentions were. But, but I, we hear a lot like in those Facebook groups. And again, I do feel like it's changing. It's becoming a lot more, um, a lot more people are saying, yeah, use this instead rather than, well, why not use it? But one of the, the common kind of counter arguments to get is, well, I don't talk about that. Or I, I don't tell the kids that it's, it's from that, or it's, it's just a song about this. And I think that you're right. If you were teaching a, a, a song in kindergarten that may be from minstrel roots, you probably wouldn't be talking about the history of that. But the fact is that the history is still there. Mm-hmm. And even if you're not including that history, that history is still attached to that song, whether you want it or not. So why why not just take it out of the situation and put something in that you can talk about the history, that the history that's attached to it is a history that that works with the what, you know, the, the, the type of music making that we want to encourage in our classroom. Yes, for sure. And I I always tell my kids, and we talk about this too, I want them to be Uh, music participants, music appreciators, and music consumers. And I want them to know, you know, what is worth consuming and what is, why something is the way it is. I want them to be able to think critically about music uh, and have the skills to do so. And so all of these kids are going to be adults someday. And as an adult, if they read an article about, um, how Jingle Bells has roots in in minstrelsy. And then they might think back, oh, well, then why did we keep singing Jingle Bells in music class? Which I, that one's a recent one for me that I discovered. But, you know, everything is coming to light in a different time, in a different way for everyone. And I truly believe when you know better, do better. So there's no use 
feeling guilty about something you don't know, but once you do know better, it, it is your responsibility to do better and, and try to make it as inclusive as you can. I think that this even goes down to um, the overuse of gender, especially in elementary classrooms. Um, we're always, at least I was always taught to, you know, genderize. A lot of the songs I taught are very much around gender. Um you know, trying to pick as many girls as boys to have turns. And that has been a learning experience for me as myself. I'm trying to remove gender from my music classroom completely. Uh, And some of the tips on that I've gotten from you. So my point is we are each other's best resource and we need to make sure that other people know what we know. And the more that we pass this information on, you know, you do what you do with it, but the right thing to do is is to do better when you know better. For sure. The phrase, no, when you know better, do better, is one that I, I, I think back on a lot, especially as I reflect on my past teaching. But another phrase that comes to mind is from Ann Molesky that teaching is situational, time-bound, and ever-changing. And that last point of it's ever-changing I think is really important. We can't do the same things that we've always done just because we've always done it. Because the world around us is changing. The world around us is different. And if we're going to teach the same way for 30, 40, 100 years or whatever until we retire, um, it's not going to work. It's not going to be the high-quality education that our students deserve. Absolutely. And I think it can be dangerous once we assume that we know everything about something and, you know, we have this set of songs that we use that are going to work until the end of time. I, I think that can be dangerous. Then you stop learning and you stop growing and you stop adapting. And you're right. That's not what's best for our students or for ourselves. And I want to, I want to mention the fact that this is a hard process. There's a lot of introspection. There's a lot of unpacking of our own biases and it's hard. But why do you think beyond just the fact that it's hard, why do you think that so many teachers are afraid of taking steps to make sure that they're being aware of the cultural implications of their teaching? Well, I think, you know, the longer that you do something a certain way that has worked for you, as far as you know, pedagogically, the harder it can be to change. I mean, that's true for all things in life. Um, And like you had said before, I think some people have the impression that since we teach younger children, they're not going to understand the implications of the song anyway. So it doesn't really matter, you know, as long as I'm not discussing the roots of the song, but still teaching it, I can get away with it. Um, And so, yeah, change is hard. And this kind of change takes time to do it right, to really shift the way that you teach your kids and and the things that you teach and finding quality literature. All those things are going to take time. So it's it's most certainly not going to be perfect. Um, I think that it's a process that should be never ending. Uh, I think there are some things we can do immediately, but there's some things that we're going to have to work to unlearn. And sometimes your students are going to see you mess up. And I think it's important for you to admit when you make a mistake uh, and to learn, especially when it comes to things like pronouncing students' names, or if you are teaching about a culture and there's a student in the class who's of that culture and they correct you on something, um, say, thank you. I'm, I'm so glad that you, corrected me because recognizing that we are human as well and we're not experts in everything and we can try our very best 
but we're going to have shortcomings even as adults. I think that's super important um, for our students' development, for them to see that we're human too and and to recover from our own mistakes and try again. And I, I think that also adds a level of trust and respect between you and your students when they can see that you are trying to, to better yourself as well. And I, I think it's also important for us to note that, you know, we're two white people talking about race right. and we can't be the only ones talking about this. We need to listen to those uh, people of color that are talking about this. Or like you said, when someone corrects you, listen, you know, allow them to help you. But in, in the same way, not in a way that is saying, do all this work exactly. for us, you know, do all this emotional legwork. I think it's, I think it's a good thing that we're taught, we're having this conversation, but I think it's also important for us to realize that there are conversations going on all over the place constantly. And we need to make sure that are, we are amplifying the voices of those people of color whenever we're able to. Absolutely. I think by centering voices of color, which means truly stopping to listen uh, if they have something to say, we need to honor them in every way that we can and give them the space to do so. But also, yeah, they're tired. They are tired of being spokespeople. They're tired of teaching everyone everything. They're tired of giving people grace. I mean, they're just tired. So we do have a responsibility as white people to actively pursue um, undoing biases of our own, uh, anti-racist work of our own. Um, but it is, it's hard. It's a fine line between amplifying voices and then making people spokespeople. But I, I really do think that if we at our heart of hearts give space to voices of color, we will learn and we will, um, we'll be able to navigate because it is our responsibility to use our privilege, uh, to affect change. And so there's, there's lots of ways to do that. I've, personally been doing a lot of reading. Um, audiobooks are my are my preference because reading is hard for someone who can't focus. Uh, but lots of book studies, lots of um, reading of the news, lots of centering people of color with, with uh, choosing where I spend my money, get, supporting those businesses, uh, just things like that. Attending protests, you know, if that's something that you're comfortable with doing attending events where not everyone's going to look like you being intentional about these things is, is where we have to start. And also being open to conversations with people and having the hard conversations, just like you and I are doing right now. That's super important too. We have to get uncomfortable to, to make change. Yeah. That level of uncomfortability, it's hard, but it's so important because if we're staying in a place of comfort, we're not, getting outside of our uh, outside of the norm. Um, so on that note, I will be putting um, some links to other people that have done wonderful work and sharing their experience and their kind of their, their perspectives into anti-racist, anti-bias education. I'll put the, put some links into the show notes so that you can check those out as well. So, Audrey, what can we do as music teachers, whether it be a big step or a small step, to take steps to make our own classrooms a place where cultural differences in history are respected, talked about, and celebrated in truly meaningful ways? Well, I think it all starts with you. If you're not willing to put in um, the work on your own self, on decentering whiteness as you see it and experience it in your own world, then you're not going to be able to do that for your students. 
and it can be overwhelming, but like I said, pick up a book, listen to a podcast. I mean, there's so many, so many good choices out there. I'm currently um, getting ready to co-lead a book study on the book, We Want to Do More Than Survive by Bettina Love. And that is um, a more education specific book, but it's, it's super palatable and really great. And so if you're looking for a place to start as a white educator or as an educator, uh, I, I would highly recommend that text. Um, but also, yeah, just being intentional about who you center, who you consume. So starting with yourself, but then also I think one of the simplest ways to be inclusive in your classroom is to make sure that the posters and the materials that you have are reflective of students of all varieties. For example, but like I said before, books, posters, um, if you're making electronic materials or slides and you have little, you know, characters of little kids on them or, you know, the classic teachers pay teachers uh, animation, make sure that there's different skin colors on there or, um, you know, maybe the girls aren't always wearing dresses or less genderized things like like we had talked about before. Just making sure that the kids in your room can see themselves in some way, shape, or form in your classroom. Uh, I think that's just absolutely step one. And then go to workshops or, you know, listen to podcasts and figure out if there is just one song that you haven't taught before, or maybe it's a song that's not in English or not from this country, deep diving and doing all of the research just on one song uh, and trying as best you can to implement in the classroom and then go from there. So baby intentional steps are going to be more meaningful than like feeling overwhelmed and then not being able to do any of it. Because like we had said before, it's going to take time. It's going to take time to make changes and for us to make changes but the internet is a beautiful thing. We have all of these resources at our fingertips. Um, it's very easy to find authentic uh, videos. Today I taught um, the Mexican folk dance uh, Los Machetes, which uh, was a suggestion from our group text for Kodai. And I found some really awesome authentic uh, groups of people doing the dance in Mexico just on YouTube. And the kids loved it. So they're super receptive to things. And, and like I said, it's not going to be perfect and you got to try some stuff. And if you learn, oh, that's not actually how it's done, or that's not what that means. And just fix it for the next time. I think that's very, it's important. And I think it's very attainable. Just start. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to look back and go, why did I do that? Make make mistakes, get messy, you know, whatever, all the misfrizzle things, try your best, just make, try your best. And then when you know better, do better. And that intent, I think will carry you through. So when you make mistakes, you can go, well, that was wrong. This is why it's wrong. Let's move on in a more positive way. And the beauty of being a music teacher is you usually have more than one try at a lesson, you know, cause there's multiple sections of a grade. So Let's say one is a dumpster fire, then you try the next day and it might be great. So we have that fortunate uh, quality. For sure. The devil is sword, for sure. (laughs) 
So Audrey, thank you so much for chatting with me on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Um, This has been a really meaningful conversation and I hope that my listeners uh, feel the same way. So are there any places my listeners can reach out to you online or find more information on anti-racist, anti-bias education? Um, So I am not the greatest at being uh, super active on social media. It's something I'm trying to work on. But if you have any specific questions, my email is arice at cwls.us. I'm absolutely no expert, but I am more than happy to start discussions and, and maybe direct people to things that have helped me. I know I personally find a lot of good resources from the Decolonizing the Music Room website. Um, and even just from there, I've been able to spider web and, and figure out some other sources as well. I know um, Nissa Brown and Karen Howard hosted a uh, – they're about two Kodai educators in the Minnesota area. They hosted a um, decentering whiteness uh, class over the summer um, that I took, and that was amazing. Um, so they both have websites. Uh, yeah, so just starting maybe there and, and see what you can find from there. Facebook's also a great thing. Social Justice Music Educators on Facebook – the list goes on and on. But yeah, I'm, I'm still learning too. So if you want to strike up a conversation, my email is arice, A-R-I-C-E at C-W-L-S dot U-S. All right, Audrey. Thank you so much. I will put all those links in the show notes so anyone can grab those easily. Audrey, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking your time after a long day of school to chat with my me. My pleasure, Bryson. Thank you. If you found this episode helpful at all, I would really appreciate you leaving a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Not only does this help me understand what you find most helpful, it also helps more music educators just like you find the podcast. To check out the show notes for this episode, including any links mentioned, head on over to thatmusicteacher.com slash show notes.